last week, and then King Ahasuerus. However, if you have like the NIV or some of the other modern language versions of the Bible, your Bible may say not Ahasuerus, but that his name was King Xerxes. And maybe you're wondering why I call him Ahasuerus and your Bible has written out Xerxes. Anybody here have a Bible that says Xerxes in their Bible? Oh yeah, quite a few hands going up there. And so here's, here's how that all works. Ancient kings usually had a number of different names uh, that they would go by based on the different languages that, that they uh, mainly dealt with. And so the king that we're talking about here is a Persian king, and the Persians used the Akkadian language, and in his own language, his name is this, 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 there's, I, I can't uh, uh, pronounce it. Um, so that's why it's just written up there uh, for you. Um, but when the authors of the Bible, the, the people who wrote Esther and Daniel and, and Ezra, these places where his name is mentioned in the Bible, what they did was they transliterated his name from Akkadian into Hebrew. Now, to transliterate something, that's not the same as translate. When you translate something, you take the meaning of the word and you use that same meaning in your language. When you transliterate something, you take the sounds of the word and then you use your own uh, alphabet to get as close as you can to those same kinds of sounds and you uh, then tra uh, bring his name across. And so in the Hebrew, they came across with Ahasuerus. Only, you know, 3,000 years ago, they didn't probably pronounce it Ahaz like we are today because they would have been more guttural and went with the Ahasuerus type of thing. And so that sounded like uh, this up there. Well, most of the information that we have about this king has been saved for us through uh, Greek and some Roman uh, historians and sources that we have. And the Greeks, when they transliterated his name, did it Xerxes. Uh, and again, they probably didn't pronounce it like that. You had a lot more uh, harsh sounds in there. But, but it was Xerxes. And, and since all of the, or most all of the information we have about the guy today came from Greek sources and stuff, when you look him up in like the encyclopedia or history textbooks and that kind of stuff, they always use the name Xerxes. And uh, whether uh, you're, you're using uh, uh, Xerxes or Ahasuerus or Kishrasharashru, it's all talking about the same guy, and, and, and that's who we have. And so I uh, just wanted to clear that up before we get going. You should be in Esther chapter 2 right now. Let's read verse 1 to give us the setting for today as we set the stage. It says, After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Father God, we do thank you for the opportunity to be together again today. What a privilege to be in your uh, your house, your presence, to learn from you. And that's our desire today, is that we would learn from you and your word. And so we ask uh, that you would speak to us. I ask that you would use me as nothing more than a tool in your hand. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So the first starts with that phrase, after these things, which would, of course, immediately cause you to think back to the activities and actions that took place in chapter 1. King Ahasuerus threw this great big party that lasted for 180 days with the purpose of uh, twofold. One, to show off his wealth, his splendor, his majesty to everybody, but also to plan an invasion of Greece. And at the end of that time, he then held another specific banquet. This one lasted uh, for seven days. And everyone, it says, that was in the citadel, from the least to the greatest, was invited to this particular banquet. Unfortunately, at this party, the uh, king drank too much. And in his drunkenness, he demanded that Queen Vashti appear before all the men in order to display her beauty. Now, it was against the social norms and rules and etiquette of that culture for any married woman to be presented uh, to a company of men. Uh, that was just a forbidden thing. And, and the queen, of course, was protected from the eyes of other men more than anyone else. So Vashti was simply doing uh, what was proper, what would have been the norm, when she said no but it was still a very courageous act on her part since women were supposed to also be subservient to their husbands in that culture. And, of course, everybody was supposed to obey any command that the king gave. So uh, although she did what was proper in terms of the normal conventions, it was in direct defiance to the king, which was bold and which was bad. This caused the, the king incredible anger. In fact, the text tells us that his anger burned within him. And under the influence of alcohol and anger, he makes another foolish choice. And that is he, on the advice of his so-called wise men, uh, decided to remove Vashti from being queen and uh, to banish her from his presence. She could never be seen in the capital, uh, in the palace, or in his presence uh, again. And uh, that brings us then to chapter 2 and the statement, after these things. Which again, might make us think that this was taking place just like right after all these things happened, right? Uh, maybe you're thinking, okay, now it's the next morning and the king has, uh, anger has subsided and he's sobered up a bit or maybe a couple of days later and things have calmed down. But that's actually not true at all. A great deal of time has passed. There's a large gap between the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. Um, chapter 1 uh, verse 3 tells us that this initial 180-day planning banquet to invade Greece and all this kind of stuff took place in the third year of, of the king's reign. But as you're reading through chapter 2, and again, I encourage you to go home, read the full chapter so you can get the details that I'm not able to spend time on this morning. It says that they're in, uh, at the end of this chapter 2, they're in the seventh year of the king's reign. And, and so... You might be thinking, really? I mean, just now, after like three, four-year gap, now you're thinking about Vashti and, and, and you remember her and, and bring this up? I mean, that's a, that's a big time. Well, there's 
a couple of reasons why uh, that may have happened, why there could have been such a gap. The first is that the king, you remember, had an entire harem full of women. And so he may have consoled himself for a fair amount of time in the company of some of these other women. But second, remember that the purpose of this this first big main banquet was to plan this invasion of Greece. And according to historical records that we have, that invasion took place uh, in the gap between chapter 1 and chapter 2. And in spite of all of their planning, that invasion did not go well. Uh, Those Greeks were a lot tougher than Ahasuerus thought. Uh, And beyond that, they had some other issues and problems. Uh, A big storm at sea destroyed a bunch of ships and ruined his invasion plans and made him adjust these things. And and the long and the short of it is, uh, he suffered a a tremendous defeat at the hands of the Greeks. And he turned tail and ran back to Susa, back to Persia. And and now, in, in, in complete defeat, He's moping around the palace, walking around depressed and and discouraged. And that's when his thoughts returned to Vashti and he remembered her and what had been done. And now he was without this beautiful wife. So his advisors figured out that they needed to do something to cheer him up. And, of course, being godless men, they figured, oh, the best way to cheer him up is to bring in more beautiful young women. And and so they uh, devise and propose a plan for him to select a new queen. They would go throughout the land. They would gather up all the most beautiful young virgins and bring them back to the citadel, to the palace, where they would then uh, undergo a a year of beauty treatments. According to uh, verse 12, uh, for the days of their beautification were completed as follows, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and the cosmetics for women, right? And, and, and the, the, the words that are used there uh, uh, include the idea, the, the actual word for oil of myrrh means rubbing of oil. So it's the idea of these women were getting massages and, and, and you know, pedicures and, and, you know, all this kind of stuff. They were doing these beauty treatments uh, for them. And then the king, uh, after the end of that one year, would select a new queen from amongst all the contestants. And, you know, when you, when you say it that way, it kind of makes it sound a little bit like, like Cinderella or, or something like that, doesn't it? You know, a, a girl from the masses, perhaps even a very poor one, could become queen of the land. But the reality is not anything near as nice a picture as that. This isn't like the voice or American Idol, right, where these contestants would run to line up with the chance to do this and, and hopefully a, a chance to win. Very likely, these girls were removed from their home against their wills. Now, it's possible that there's some that may have accepted this, uh, maybe even a little eagerly, if they came from an incredibly poor and very unhappy home life. But most of them would not have been thrilled 
about going. And for multiple reasons. I mean, it meant being separated, likely forever, from your family. Because, see, once the contest was over, unlike, you know, American Idol where, okay, I didn't win, I go home and, and you're back and things are normal, that's not what would happen here. The girls not selected to be queen were relegated to the harem where for the rest of their lives they would be isolated from society. The harem was kept. It was like being in prison. They didn't get to interact with the different social activities going on. They didn't get to go out in the towns. They didn't get to see any of these things. They were kept under lock and key because they belonged to the king. So they were away from their families, no real future, probably not even a child of their own to raise. I mean, look at the way the contest went, according to verse 14. After they, they got that year uh, of beauty treatments, then it was when it was the girl's turn, it says, when it was the girl's turn, in the evening she would go in, and we're talking to the king, and in the morning she would return to the second harem, to the custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not again go into the king unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So now think about what that verse means. This young virgin girl was taken into the king in the evening where he had his way with her and then in the morning she was removed and stuck in the harem. That might be the last time she would ever see the king or any other men other than the eunuchs that were in charge because she was locked away. Unless the king, for some reason, really delighted in her, and then he might call her back if he called her by name someday in the future when he wanted her presence again. And so if this girl had any hopes and dreams of a loving husband, building a home, raising a family, spending holidays with the extended family, maybe someday holding a grandchild on her lap. All those dreams went down the tubes when she was taken for this contest. And there was a bunch, a bunch of these young ladies taken. Look at verse 8. So it came about when the command and decree of the king were heard and many Many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa into the custody of Haggai that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the custody of Haggai who was in charge of the women. Notice the words that are used there, gathered, custody, taken into custody. Those are words that strongly imply that this was not a voluntary thing. It would not would not be a life this girl would willingly choose for herself. And so things, things didn't look good for these young women because only one of them would get to be queen, meaning the odds were very slim 
for any type of happy ending for the rest of them. And one of the girls taken, we are told, is Esther. Now, like all the rest of these young ladies that were taken, we don't know for sure her age, but since they were getting unmarried young virgins, the chances are they were all somewhere between the ages of about 16 and 20, give or take uh, a little bit on either side of this. And at this point is when we're first introduced to the heroes of our story as we're going to be getting into it. Uh, the first one we're introduced to is a man named Mordecai. Verse 5 says, Now there was at the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with uh, Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. Now, some people, as they read that verse, they, they misread it a bit, and they think that Mordecai was the one that was taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar. But even if he was, you know, a one-year-old baby when he was taken captive, that'd make him over 125 years old at this point. It, w it was his grandfather, Kish, who was taken into captivity. And, and the way Nebuchadnezzar worked is um, he, he brought these people in, but then turned them loose within his kingdom to become productive citizens in there. And so Kish would have gone and, and, and if he wasn't already married, gotten married and built a home, raised a family. And now we come down to Mordecai, fourth generation of this is where they have lived. At some point in time, uh, the family would have moved from, from Babylon where they first were to now the capital of Susa after the Medes and the Persians taken over. But this, this was his country. This is what he had grown up in and where he had lived. And sometimes, as happens in families, he took on an unexpected responsibility. A look at verse 7. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her in as his own daughter. So Esther was Mordecai's cousin, but apparently he was a much, much older cousin because when she was orphaned, he took her as his own daughter to raise her. Now, there, there's no Mrs. Mordecai ever mentioned. Um, and we don't know if Mordecai was married, if he had other children, since they're not germane to the story and what takes place here. It might be that they were just never mentioned. Or it is possible that Mordecai was a single guy and he was the only one who was able or willing to take on the responsibility of raising Esther. Either way, he became her father, and the implication was she was very, very young when this happened. He became her father. He was the one who raised her. She, uh, for her, he was the only dad she knew until this moment when she was ripped away from the home and taken to the citadel and the palace of the king. And things did not look good for her because of all those reasons we just mentioned. And then the additional reason that as a Jew, she was only supposed to marry another Jew. And here she was being taken into the palace of this foreign king. Now, once she uh, arrives at the palace, along with all the other girls, they were placed under the care of Haggai. And we are told that Esther found favor in his eyes. 
Now, there's, there's no explanation uh, for why she found favor, just that she did. And no doubt she was polite and nice, but, you know, that was probably true of all the young ladies that were there because that would have been the culture, the norm uh, for how they were raised in, in those days. In, in this first series that I did on this sermon that I did in this series, I, I can kind of contrasted Esther with Daniel. And I said, in Daniel, God and his activities are very overt, right? Every time God did something, we saw it, we read it. It said, God did this, God did that, and this type of thing. But in Esther, his activities, his actions are very covert. They're hidden. So it's not specifically explained to us that God did this or did that. So in the book of Daniel, we would read this. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. We knew, okay, this is what God was doing. But in Esther, it simply says she found favor. But see, the truth is, it was God who was acting in both of those situations. She found favor in Haggai's eyes, and therefore he used his influence as keeper uh, of the women there to give Esther, it says, cosmetics and choice food portions and the best handmaids and the prime location in the harem. Now, I, none of us know exactly what that means. I, I, don't know, I don't know what it means to get the prime location in the harem, but apparently it was a good thing. What it, what it means is that this guy was using his influence to treat her well. Now, that could create problems, right? With all the other girls. I mean, nobody likes the teacher's pet. Uh, and so with these other girls, she could have uh, experienced some jealousy. They could have been angry at her. They could have uh, uh, condemned her, any of these types of things. But instead, what we read is, and Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. These girls that could have despised her for her preferential treatment actually took a liking to her. And then her turn comes to go into the king and look at what happens. The king loved Esther more than all the women and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Now I know people could try to explain this from a humanistic uh, point of view. Oh, you know, Esther, she must have had this, this winsome, bubbly personality to go along with those stunning good looks. But remember, these guys were gathering the best-looking women from the whole kingdom. It's not like she was the only good-looking girl there. And it's very likely that she wasn't the only one with a nice personality. The truth is, she overcame great odds to be selected as queen and the logical conclusion as to why is because God was working. His providential care brought her to this place and to this position. Now, do we have any support, any proof of a statement like that? Besides the fact that, you know, in Daniel it was told overtly that God was the one providing the favor? Well, I, I think we do. Psalm 75.7 tells us, 
But God is judge. He puts down one and exalts another. See, it was because of God's action and God's choice and God's work that Esther found favor in the eyes of her caretaker and the other people in the harem and even in the eyes of the king. God puts down the other girls and exalted her for his purpose. And Ahasuerus, he may have thought that he was the one making the choice to select Esther as queen, but he wasn't. It was God's doing. And if you're not sure, if you don't really believe that, you know, that's the way things work and, and, and God does things that way, take, take a look at Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Who made the choice to make Esther queen? God did. And yeah, this, this pagan, sinful despot of a king, he was an instrument in God's hand to further God's plan and his purposes, not only for what he was going to do in the world, but specifically in Esther's life. I think that's important for us as Christians to understand. Because it reminds us that even when things look bad, I mean, as they looked bad for Esther being ripped from the only home she knew and faced with life as a, as a concubine, even when things looked bad, God was still working. And that ought to give us hope. Because I got a question for you. If God can turn the heart of a sinful king to accomplish His will, do you think He can do that in your circumstances? Can He turn the heart of a boss, a spouse, a board, a teacher? The answer, of course, is yes, He can, and He does which means there's hope even when we're facing ugly circumstances. And I, I don't know what circumstances each of you may be facing here today. They may be bad. I would suspect that there's probably someone in here who is facing some type of circumstances that just makes you feel sick in the pity of your stomach when you're thinking about it because you have no idea how it's going to turn out and you can't understand why God's letting all these bad things happen to you. And they may be tempted to cause you to give in to despair. But like Esther, I would tell you, hold your head up high. Because here's the truth. God has not clocked out. He is still on the job. And He is still working for your benefit, for your welfare, and to bring about His good plan and purposes for His people. 
And that's why it's pretty dangerous for us to judge what God's doing based only on circumstances because our temptation, our tendency is to think, boy, if things aren't favorable, if things are falling apart, if things are going bad, that means God's not in it. That somehow God failed. Or maybe it's my fault and, and you know, God's punishing me or, or I, you know, this type of thing. And the truth is God may be bringing you into some very difficult situations and circumstances because it fits His plan and His purpose for your life. And you're thinking, yeah, I don't like that. Why? Why would God allow these terrible things to go on? Well, let me give you three possible reasons that we can see from Esther here. Number one, when you face difficult circumstances, it strengthens your faith. Oftentimes you'll read in the Bible about how God tested the faith, tested so-and-so's faith. What's he mean by test? Was did he want to see if it was there or not? No, that's not what he's talking about at all. To, to test, think of it in, in the terms that you would think of uh, for an athlete. When they want to test the limit of their endurance, what do they do? They go as far as they can possibly go. They push it as hard as they could. They, they put as much weight on the, bale, uh, the dumbbell as they can and try to lift it, or, or, or they run as hard as they can until they hit the wall and then go beyond. To test means going through the tough circumstances to see what's behind it. And as you test your physical endurance or abilities, you strengthen them. They get stronger, better for the next time. God does that. And guess what? Your faith is strengthened a whole lot more in tough times than they are in easy times. God would use tough times to refine your faith. Again, the Bible talks about refining like gold, and that means they heat it up in the furnace and pull the dross off. And guess what? We all have dross in us, dross that needs to be taken out. And oftentimes, the only way for God to remove that dross in your life, one little aspect of it, is to take you through a very difficult situation to purify strengthen your faith again. Sometimes God brings you into horrible, tough situation to prepare you and to place you where He needs you to be for the next step. Isn't that what we see in Esther? We, most of us, I'm sure, know the story. We know where we're going with there. She was placed and prepared. But she didn't know that a year earlier when she was taken from her home and thought she might end up as a concubine. And everything looked horrible. And she's wondering, where, God, are you at? And what are you doing? And he's saying, what I'm doing is I am preparing you and placing you in a position where I am going to be glorified and you are going to be used far beyond your wildest dreams in my glorious plan.
God may be doing that for you. So when you come to the tough, the bad circumstances, don't think God's stepped out. In fact, what you need to remember is God is moving right now in your life. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for this account of Esther, for this part of her story where we can be reminded that even when things look bad, you are at work. You haven't abandoned us. You haven't forgotten us. But instead, you want to refine us, strengthen us, and use us. So thank you for that, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Crown him with many crowns, the Lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns the music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee. And hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity.